We are going to be in a multitude of scriptures again this morning, about four of them, maybe five, we'll see. So have your fingers in, start in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be also in 1 Samuel 8. That's a trickier one to find, so I'll give you a head start. 1 Samuel 8, have your fingers in that section. Ezekiel 34, we're also going to be in this morning. So if it helps, there's sort of a, a sneak peek. I am sort of hanging this theme on basically four major scriptures. And so that's how we're kind of walking through this theme together, um, just so you have a sense of where we're going. So this week we are in our second last um, sermon in our series on Advent. As you have probably noticed, as a church, we don't often deviate from whatever book we are in. We like to go through a book consecutively so that we can understand uh, the whole redemptive picture in its own context. But at times, it's appropriate to, to take on a subject or a, a series of subjects that are uh, thematically bundled together. And at Christmas time, it is wonderful. I didn't do it last year. We just went right through the Gospel of John last year. Uh, but this year, um, I decided and uh, bounced it off a few people in our church. What do you think about an Advent series? And um, I got approval from, from some folks who were thoughtful and prayerful about it. So I thought, let's do it. So we have been talking about this theme of Advent, which is the, the notion and the reality and the history of God sending his son to the earth. We believe that, well, it, and it was a historic event. It happened once in a specific place in a specific time with a specific message. Advent came not just as a sentimental little baby to be coddled and, and seen as cute so that we could all enjoy a cute baby. There are lots of cute babies in this congregation. You may hold them at any time to give the parents a break. If you want to enjoy that, you can. But Advent is not limited to the cuteness of the baby or the sweetness of the baby. Advent came with a message and with meaning that had eternal consequence, which is why we want to wrap our heads around basically five questions that Advent answers. Because there is an eternal consequence to how these questions get answered. And there is eternal consequence as to how you relate to these questions. We've sort of been looking and framing our topics around uh, the, the structure of the question, who will? Who will reverse the curse? Who will cleanse us before God? Last week we looked at who will or who can please God. Who can please God? Who can live a life that's pleasing to God? And the answer to all these questions is that Sunday school answer, Jesus Christ. So I've already given away the ending. But the question is, how does the Old Testament pose the question? And how is it fulfilled in the Messiah? Because just saying the name Jesus over and over and over again doesn't actually do anything for you. Just crying out the name you need to understand who he is and what he did, because when we call upon a name, we are calling upon a person, an identity. And so we're trying to fill that in just so that you know why we're doing this Advent series, so that we can understand who Christ is and why it was necessary that Advent took place uh, those years ago. And so we're in Matthew chapter 2, and I want to read the first six verses. If you're sharp, you'll recognize, I think we read the same six verses last week. And I'll explain that in just a minute. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came 
to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, quote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and to behold the Christ as he truly is, as he truly presents himself to be, Lord. So help us to understand these various scriptures. Help us to apply them and understand them and believe them. And Lord, help us to give thanks for who you are, that you have revealed yourself in your word. So I pray now, Lord, that we would turn and truly worship you in our hearing. We ask this, asking for help from the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things I'm doing at home with my kids um, after dinner is we've been reading through the Advent story. And although it doesn't comprise the most incredible percentage of scriptures, you can just keep reading it over and over and over again because there are so many elements to the Advent story that you can pull out and say, look how significant this is. Look what this person did. Look how this person believed. Look how this person reacted. Look what God was saying in this prophecy. And so we can just keep rereading it and pulling out different uh, sections. And, and actually, next week's is very similar to this week's as well. And so we read this. We talked about um, Bethlehem and, um, and, and where the Messiah would come from. And we're going to see a new element that comes out of this same scripture this week. But before we dive deep into that, I want to tell you a little bit of a historic anecdote to help set up this prophecy. In 1938, which is a number of years after Adolf Hitler had already been elected Chancellor of Germany, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, his name was Neville Chamberlain. You might not know that name because he is in the shadow of the next Prime Minister of Great Britain, whose name was Winston Churchill, a little better known. Nonetheless, at that time, the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, in the view of what Adolf Hitler was doing, which was showing aggression and, and these advancing controlling tactics, as we, we need to remember, Adolf Hitler was democratically elected. And so his regime began to change form and, and show increasing control over society and their presence in people's communities was increasingly alarming. And in, and in the political context of Nazi Germany basically rising to power and strengthening its army reserves and its air reserves, Neville Chamberlain traveled to Munich and signed what has become known as the Munich Pact, essentially granting Nazi Germany permission to annex and take control over areas of Czechoslovakia where German people, where German-speaking people lived. It essentially granted them political immunity for invading other sovereign countries. This was signed by Italy, which was a, an ally of Germany in World War II. It was signed by France, and it was signed by Great Britain. This was the approach that the diplomats of the time took with Adolf Hitler. 
Adolf Hitler was, uh, rose to power actually preaching a, a, a gospel of victimhood of his people. In the wake of World War I, they, they took on heavy reparations. They took a lot of the blame for the damage and the financial responsibility. And Adolf Hitler rose to power by puffing the egos of his people and saying, you don't deserve this. You are victims of the political uh, national scene. And I can change that. I can make you great again. I can make you what you deserve to be. And in his mind, that included ethnic cleansing and all sorts of the evils that we know are associated with Nazi Germany. But this was Neville Chamberlain's position on Adolf Hitler. He declared after the Munich Pact, peace in our time. This was 1938. He said, peace in our time. Backing up, all during the 1930s, um, there, was a, uh, there was another parliamentarian who was in and out of um, politics who repeatedly warned about the aggression of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, com- continually warning and warning and warning about their aggressive stance and posture. His name, Winston Churchill, was dragged through the mud, routinely being called a warmonger, a scaremonger, out of touch. He didn't know the way of diplomacy. And one year after the Munich Pact was signed, and Neville, Neville, Neville Chamberlain declared peace in our time, one year later, 1.5 million German forces invaded Poland at 4.45 in the morning on September 1st, 1939. Two days later, essentially World War II was declared as those nations declared war on Germany and all the allies jumped in. Amazing that Winston Churchill, in the midst of all of this, had the true voice. He said after the Munich Pact of Neville Chamberlain, you were given the choice between dishonor and war, and you chose dishonor, and you shall have war. In other words, your desire was to avoid war by appeasing this dictator. So you have dishonored Great Britain and the cause of righteousness, and you will yet have war anyway. This is what um, Churchill said a year before, and he was, uh, he was right within 365 days, World War II being declared. For better or for worse, every single political, judicial, or spiritual leader in a nation are shepherds. They legislate and uphold and bind together the collective morality and economic vision for the nation that they lead either unto poverty or loss, excuse me, poverty and loss, or prosperity and unity. In 1940, about a year after the war had been declared, Neville Chamberlain lost the confidence of his people. He couldn't lead during war. He had no appetite for it. He had no strength and constitution for it. And he was replaced by the warmonger, Winston Churchill who said he had been born for this hour. He believed that he had no other purpose on earth than to take head on the evils of Nazi Germany. Uh, The most famous conflicts between Germany and Great Britain were the air raids, was the air fight. I just watched a documentary on the Spitfires and taking on the German air forces. Um, Germany relocated their bombing from the airfields into central London where there were civilians, where there were all kinds of women, children. It was a horrifying hour for Great Britain. While daily the Spitfires were taken to the sky to 
to destroy the Nazi invasion and to fend off the German forces, Winston Churchill took to the radio every single day. He took to the radio waves every single day to inspire in, uh, endurance and courage and strength in his people because he knew he not only had to fend off the German forces, but he had to strengthen the people to get through it. He literally took a shepherding role with his people to get them through uh, this horrendous hour for Great Britain. And in the end, we know that Winston Churchill was the linchpin of victory. His resolve to fight, his resolve to defeat Germany, and his, his care for the people at home was a recipe for victory and success. And so we have a picture here, a vignette of two shepherds, one who denied reality and appeased evil and led a, political, a politically expedient career. And we have one who, against public opinion, spoke the truth about reality, which afforded him the awareness and the courage to fight against Germany. And so we have a picture of courage and we have a picture of fear and passivity. The reason I start with that illustration is because I think it helps get us into the mindset of how Israel would first hear this prophecy, this speech about their Messiah. Our title again this morning is, Who Will Shepherd God's People? Who Will Lead Them to Safety, Security, Provision, and Righteousness? And the historic illustration helps get us, as I said, more into the headspace of Israel. We, we have a hard time relating to Israel as the church today. We don't fully understand their identity, who they were. Even today, you might ask yourself, what is Israel? Are they God's people? Are they a religious nation? Are they a Christian nation? Are they a Jewish nation? What does it mean to be Israel? Well, in the first century here, Israel understood itself to be a nation state under God, a theocratic nation. Although they were occupied by Rome at the time, they did not have full national sovereignty. They were a nation state. They had a history as a theocratic nation, which is to say a nation that had been formed by the hand of God. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? When he brought them out of Egypt, he gave them a law, a diet, a culture, leaders, and he made of them a nation. He promised them even borders, like a real nation. And so this is how Israel understood itself. And they had carried along in their scriptures, in their religious history, they had carried along the expectation of a ruler. They carried along with them the expectation of one who would come, who would replace every leader as the ultimate leader, as the ultimate king, as the ultimate shepherd. And in this prophecy, we see... Jesus, having been born in Bethlehem, we see the picture of these wise men coming, and they inquire of the king, saying, We saw his star, and we have come to worship. And they call him the king of the Jews, which this rattles Herod's cage a little bit. Herod has been put in charge as king over the Jews by Rome. He's sort of a local king. He considers himself to be king over Israel at the time. And so when wise men come and they say, We're looking for the true king, this rattles Herod's cage. This is why Herod becomes one of the most bloodthirsty kings in all of history, wiping out every two-year-old and under to try to wipe out the king. He wants to remain as king. Obviously, that's unsuccessful. But when the wise men come and they inquire, Herod, he's like, I know about this. So he brings in all the scholars. He brings in all the Jewish scholars. And he says, can you let me know where this king is supposed to be born? And so they open up their Bibles. They open them up to Micah chapter 5. That's when I said, quote, that's where they're quoting from. And Micah chapter 
5 verse 2 states, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the, that's the key text that the scholars brought up and they said, I think he's going to be born in Bethlehem because there's, there's a, a ruler promised who's going to arise from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem was assured of its significance in history by being the birthplace of this king. Every small town is proud of its big name folks, right? In Smith Falls, if you walk around the rink, you can see every athlete who's gone on to greatness, their picture on the wall and most recently, we have the, the Henderson Twins, professional golfers and NHL players and CFL players. And we're very proud when people from Smith Falls rise to prominence. And you may think of some prominent people from your hometown. And that's sort of what affords us our significance. We, we puff our shoulders out, right? And this is what God is saying to Bethlehem. You will be significant because the world's greatest leader, Israel's greatest leader, is going to come forth from you. And so remember, this is in a context where Israel is considering themselves and they recognize themselves to be a theocratic nation state with their own customs, their own laws, their own practices. But it's, but it's intermingled and it's, and it's steeped with a worship of God. So in their national organization, they also have laws for worship, laws for sacrifice, laws for prayer, laws for priests. This is all, again, this is totally unique in history. This is God revealing himself through a nation all through the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's the, those are the focal people of the Old Testament. And so as a nation state, they required leaders of some kind, right? And throughout their history, they were given uh, judges, they were given priests, they were given prophets, and eventually they were given kings. And as I said, and the, and the scriptures speak to this, that all of those people are shepherds in some form, right? You could consider the Liberal Party of Canada right now as our shepherd. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily leading the right way, but any leader of any people can be considered in first century analogy as a shepherd. Showing the way forward, showing the means to get there, being alongside people and, and showing them the way that they believe that they should go. Now, every shepherd governs according to their vision of the world which is why it's critical that we pray for our leaders. We pray that God would be their guiding light, not pagan ideology, not sinfulness, not rebellion. But all of these people can be characterized as shepherds because in some way they are showing the people the direction to go. Now the problem in Israel's history leading up to this prophecy was that they suffered greatly for the shortcomings and for the rebellion and for the sin of their shepherds. As the shepherd goes, so the people go. These shepherds were self-serving. They, were, they often prophesied falsely, speaking for God when God had not spoken for them. We had uh, kings and, and priests and prophets who indulged in lust and bloodthirst. We had kings who eventually uh, would, would take over in Israel and would indulge in all kinds of wickedness, child sacrifice and pagan idol worship and sexual indulgence. Now, this is the guilt of the shepherd. This is the guilt before God of the shepherd who is not faithful to God, leading astray in all kinds of ways. We actually looked at one of the examples last week with Aaron. When Moses goes up on the mountain, Aaron is left to mediate for the people. He is their interim shepherd. 
And what do the people do? They say, where's Moses? We would like to have these golden calves made so that we can worship these false gods. And Aaron, as their shepherd, instead of standing for what is right, he does exactly what Neville Chamberlain would have done and says, great, give me your gold rings and I'll make you the golden calf. You can do whatever you want. Peace in our time. This is an example of the foolishness of the shepherds that Israel um, was burdened under. Now, I said we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8 because we need to recognize that Israel bore quite a bit of the blame for this reality. We have to recognize that they carry part of the blame for these realities. And again, this is why the expectation of a ruler was so great in Israel. This is why it was not a small birth announcement that the king of the Jews was coming. Because Israel throughout their history had seen good king, mediocre king, horrible king, all through a rotating door on the throne. And so we look back at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we see the root of where this takes place. So there's a guy named Samuel, and he's a prophet for the Lord. And Samuel would anoint judges over Israel. Judges were like um, sort of judicial mediators. They weren't kings. They weren't uh, autonomous. They were judges who mediated between the people and God. So when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel, and the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, in his ways, but they turned after for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a, judge, a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said to us, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And this is key. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So Israel said, we want to be less distinct. God, we know that you created us as a nation, but we want to be less distinct. We want to look more like the other nations. So what's with this judge stuff? Who has judges over them? We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. We want somebody powerful who can stand at the front and represent us. And Samuel is discouraged by this. Samuel sees God's people turning away from God and saying, what is going on here? They're rejecting me. And God says, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as king over them. What they didn't recognize was that, that they had a judge, but they also had a king who was in heaven, who was sovereign over them, even though he was not visible to the rest of the nations. He fought for them. He fought with them. He went before them. He provided for them. He was their good shepherd. And they didn't recognize him. And they overthrew him. And they said, we don't want the Lord for our king. We want a king. And they went and found Saul. And there's a warning from Samuel. And he says, look, if you want a king, you're going to get what a king brings. A king needs to keep up with all the other kings. He needs to enlarge his armies. He needs to enlarge his servants. He needs to enlarge his treasuries. And he needs to multiply his wives. 
In other words, if you want to hire a king, he's got to keep up with the Joneses. He's got to look like all the other kings, not in a way that the judges did. The judges didn't have that one-to-one comparison between kings. Whereas if you set over yourself a king, he's going to be chasing those things instead of the Lord. In other words, he will be a shepherd that will lead you astray. And so began the pattern in Israel where you would have a good king and a wicked king followed by the wicked king's sons. Then you would have some sort of revival that wouldn't necessarily take deep hold and after a generation it would be washed away again by a wicked king. Israel had a tumultuous and unstable political environment because of the wickedness of their shepherds. And so again, they carried with them this anticipation from Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So they carried with them this expectation. When will this end? When will this instability end? And as anticipation for that, turn to Ezekiel 34. I want you to see this because God... In all of this, although they had abandoned God, God did not abandon them. He did not leave them in this course. He did not leave them in this state forever. God responds to the shepherds. He responds to the wicked shepherds. He responds to the passive shepherds. He responds to the selfish shepherds. He acts on behalf of of his people. He steps back in and says, I'm not going to let you continue in this horrendous cycle. I'm going I'm to read 15 verses, so follow along. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. In other words, this prophecy is not coming to the people. The people have their sins. The people have their shortcomings. I know that. But this prophecy is for the shepherds. This word is for the rulers. You go say to them, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek them out. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because of my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd... And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, this is the word. Behold, I am against the shepherds. I am against the shepherds. I am not with them. And I will require my sheep at their hand to put a stop to their feeding the sheep. 
No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my people. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. This is God's intervention for Israel. The shepherds have failed. They have fed themselves. They have clothed themselves. They have provided for themselves in their own endeavors. The people have been nothing more than a tax base. They have been nothing more than to squeeze out from them what they can do for themselves. This is how the shepherds saw God's people. And God said, that is enough. These are my sheep. They have been scattered because you have not been protecting them. You have not been watching for them. They have been lost. They have become a prey. They have become vulnerable. And you have not even sought them out. You don't even care where they are. You have to remember that these kings are in charge of a theocratic nation state. They are accountable to God. as is every person, as is every leader today, accountable to God. And God intervenes and says, I will not stand for this. I myself will shepherd my people. He exposes their guilt. He sets himself against them. And he intervenes and says, here's the solution. Here's the solution. I'm going to restore what you gave up in 1 Samuel 8. God said of their decision in 1 Samuel 8, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as their king. And God returns in Ezekiel 34 and says, I am going to restore what they rejected. I myself will be their shepherd. I myself will be their king. And there's a promise in verse 23. Just look down a couple lines in your Bible. He says, I will set up over them One shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David David shall be the prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So in God's solution to shepherd them himself, to care for them in a way that none of these other hired kings will ever do. All of these disinterested kings, God's solution is I will take care of them. I will take care of my people. I will make sure they are safe. And his promise is to send a representative to do it. We know that God is invisible and dwells in unapproachable light. God himself in his own nature is not going to physically shepherd them. But he says, I will send my representative. I will send, guess who? One shepherd and his name shall be my servant, David. Now let's jump back 
to Matthew chapter 2 and John chapter 10 as we see this come to fruition. Matthew chapter 2. Who is the ruler who will shepherd God's people? Where will he be born? Not Jerusalem. Bethlehem, the city of David. To a man named Joseph who was of the family lineage of the house of, guess who? David. Jesus was born into the lineage of King David in the city of David to fulfill the prophecy that a ruler would come from the people who would shepherd God's people. His name was Jesus Christ and his parents were Mary and Joseph. This was the true royal baby who would one day become ruler and would one day faithfully shepherd according to all God had promised in Ezekiel 34. I will feed them on the mountains in Israel. I will make them to lie down in green pastures. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 23. David prayed, the Lord is my shepherd. All that was prophesied and promised in Ezekiel 34 would come to pass in this child, in this Messiah, Jesus Christ. We could never fully understand this if we did not have John chapter 10 in our Bibles. John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus said to them, There is no coincidence about this language. There is no coincidence about this analogy, the imagery that he uses. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. This is how he speaks of the previous shepherds. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and he will find what? Pasture. Good pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. This is not just hyperbole or cute imagery. This is Jesus declaring with all the force of the Holy Spirit, I am what Ezekiel 34 anticipated. I am the shepherd you've been waiting for. I am the ruler that you have been waiting for. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. He who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. This is what it's like when you have people ruling over you who don't really care for you. They see threats coming and they bolt. Why would you fight a wolf on behalf of people you don't even care about? And so you run and Jesus says, look at those. They run. And guess what happens? The wolf snatches them and scatters them. This is exactly what Ezekiel 34 said. They have become a prey to the wild beasts. The shepherd has not cared for them, has not shielded them. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. What did Ezekiel 34 say? I will gather them from the countries to which they have been scattered. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not in this fold. I have sheep who are outside of Israel. I have sheep who don't live in this region. I have sheep who live all over the planet. I'm going to go get them. 
I'm going to go speak to them, and they're going to hear my voice, and they're going to follow me. He says, my sheep know my voice. They'll know it when they hear it. Friends, if you are here this morning and you know the voice of the shepherd, if you are hearing it, it is an unmistakable call. This is your shepherd, Jesus Christ. He lays his life down for the sheep. He will not flee when a wolf comes. He will not let you be scattered. He will not let you go hungry. He will welcome you in and lead you in green pastures. He is the good shepherd. This is the one that you can trust. This is the ruler who was promised. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, Jesus says, my own death is not even an accident. It's not because I got beat. It's because I laid it down that my sheep may have life to the fullest. Listen to this. In verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. This is so key. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. God said in Ezekiel 34, so I will set over them one shepherd. Jesus says unmistakably here in an echo of that passage, there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. In other words, I will save those in Israel who will hear my voice and I will go and I will gather the other sheep from the nations, and I will join them to this flock. We are grafted into God's people. We are welcomed into that flock. We are welcomed into that heritage, that promise that God will shepherd and shield and protect his people through his servant David. We're not talking about King David. That was a temporary king for Israel. This is the true David. This is the true ruler who is over Israel who is over true Israel, who is by faith, which, my friends, includes you and me if you have responded to the voice of the shepherd. If you have followed Christ, you belong to true Israel. You belong to these promises. This is for you. One other amazing promise of the, uh, the passage in Ezekiel 34 is that God said, my servant will make a new covenant with the people, a covenant of peace. And when Christ took the cup of his blood, he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. He is the covenant maker. He is the shepherd who will make this covenant with God's people. And you know what? In this covenant, he fulfills both ends of the deal. He fulfills the faithfulness of God and he fulfills the obedience of the people. We learned about that last week, right? So in this covenant, it is impossible to fall away. It is impossible to be condemned by God. It is impossible to break this covenant if you are included by faith. This shepherd fulfills both parts of the covenant. It is a covenant of peace. It's a covenant of peace between us and God. Christ is our one shepherd. He is the one voice you need to follow. He is trustworthy. And he's eternal. Now we're going to close with our application. This is not, this is not a, uh, a philosophical pie-in-the-sky idea. There are some hard practical implications for this reality. In that promise in, in, Micah, in Micah chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 2, the promise is that the shepherd will lead my people. 
He will shepherd my people. A ruler will come and shepherd my people. The reality is that in Israel and in the New Covenant, it's inconceivable that God's people are sort of this scattered, independent, individualistic grouping of people merely tied together by ideology. It was in Israel and so it was in the New Covenant that God's people were manifestly gathered. Now, we recognize that we are not a nation-state the, the Christian church is not truly, you know, Canada or truly Brazil. The true Christian church is global. But it does not mean that we are not physically manifest in some way. Again, when God said, I will shepherd my people, I will gather them. He literally talked about assembling them together. How does the shepherd shield somebody who has wandered off? First, he must go and find him and bring him back into the sheepfold. So God's people must manifestly be assembled, gathered together to be shepherded by this shepherd, to be led by this God. For us in the New Testament, we need to recognize that although Christ is the true shepherd, he came to fulfill that ultimate role. He left 12 under shepherds to lead his people called the apostles. Now, one of them fell away. They replaced him. Uh, Paul is, is best seen as that 12th apostle. And so in John chapter 21, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course I do. And what is Jesus' response? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Jesus, do you, or Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, you have one job for the rest of your life. You are now a shepherd under me over my people. And I only want one thing from you. Take care of them the way that I would. Peter would later say in his letter to the elders of the churches, he would say, shepherd the flock that is among you willingly, not for shameful gain. In other words, Jesus set up the manifestation, the embodiment, the gathering of his people in the church. The people of God assemble now as the church. We do not assemble as kings and judges and vassals and all this, this political structure. We exist now in an ecclesiastical structure. We are gathered together as the church with elders overseeing and shepherding the flock, tending the flock, caring for them, leading them to green pastures, feeding them the word. And Jesus is overseeing the whole thing as the great shepherd. In fact, the reason why elders need to take care in how they shepherd the people is because Paul says one day the chief shepherd will return. The chief shepherd is coming back. You do not get to do with the church whatever you think is right. You need to do what Christ has done for the church, which is to lead and feed and teach the truth, selflessly leading the church. So my friends, if you want God's protection, if you want God as your shepherd, you need to, number one, you need to hear the voice of his shepherd. You need to hear the voice of his servant. That is Jesus Christ. Hear the voice of the shepherd. Trust 
the voice of the shepherd. He calls out and his sheep hear his voice. Number two, you need to join the church. Uh, there's no other way to say that. The church is not a, a mystical group that will you, you know, fill your spiritual coffers every week. The church is not you know, a political organization. The church is a bunch of ordinary looking people. Look around if you don't believe me. We are ordinary. We are, we are small. We are weak. We are in very many senses powerless. But in us resides the Holy Spirit. In us resides the spirit of that shepherd who says, do not forsake the gathering together. Be together. Just be together. It doesn't matter if you have it all perfect or figured out or if you're struggling at home or if you don't have all the answers. Just be together. Go spend time with your elders. They care for you. They love you. They want to shepherd you. This is Jesus' exhortation. Uh, one of the, uh, a church pastor that I really enjoy, his name is Paul Martin, and he's a pastor in Toronto of uh, Grace Life Church. He said, in 25 years of pastoral ministry, he said, I can say that the most spiritual transformation I have ever seen comes from simple participation in the local church. And he says, get off the fringes and get into the fray at your local church. Why? Not because Jesus needs your help. But because he says, go where Jesus promised to be. Jesus promised to shepherd his people, so be with his people. For I have provided so much in that reality. And the fulfillment of his promise to shepherd us is manifest for now in the local church where the Spirit of Christ moves among us and unites us together and causes us to bear each other's burdens and to celebrate each other's victories and to walk as a unified whole. And so, my friends, that's my exhortation in terms of an application. You are the Lord's sheep if you know the voice of the shepherd. So be with the sheep. It is good to be together and it is good to worship together. And in that, we receive the shepherding of our great shepherd.